All right, the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter one. Now, Ruth is one of my favorite books, and I know that you're probably saying, Pastor Dan, every time we start a book, you say, this is one of my favorite books. Well, it's true. I like all of them, but this one is a really cool book. So, so you'll see that as we travel through this. And you might want to ask, you know, why would we want to study this book? Well, this book of Ruth, this tiny book of Ruth in the Old Testament is one of the most powerful books of prophecy in the entire Bible. In the ancient Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth was not placed here in the historical books. It was placed further uh, in, in, in the back with the prophets. Later on, that was switched, but it's a book of, of incredible prophecy. Everything in this book is hereby designed. And the question that I always have to wrestle with with a book like this is what do you leave in and what do you leave out? Because there's a lot more than what I can cover. So I'm going to kind of hit some of the highlights. But hopefully as you see some of these highlights, you begin to think through and let the Lord show you just how incredible this book really is. When we study a book of the Bible, we have to look at, first of all, the historical. You know, this is something that, that really took place. It's not allegorical. It's not allegory. Their people are real, and this really did take place. And then beyond that, you know, you have the practical or the homiletical, which is, you know, how do I apply this to my life? And before you get to the practical or homiletical, you got to go through the exegetical, which is what does the text say? And then the expositional, what does it mean? And then once you get beyond that, then you have the homiletic, which is how do I apply it to, to my life? Or how does it work itself out in my life? But there's another aspect of this book that I think we're going to find very fascinating is that there's the prophetic aspect of this book. What does this book say about the future? And we're going to find this has a whole lot to say. And so I'll be uh, unpacking that as we go. And again, there's a lot more than what we can get into today. So it will also be a book that, um, that um, challenges us in uh, what we would call our hermeneutics. Now, if you're thinking that I just spout these words off all the time, I actually have to stop and remember what they mean all the time. So, so if you're thinking, wow, I really know some words. Well, it's because I had to re-memorize them this week. But your hermeneutic is how you approach the Scripture. Uh, here at Calvary, we would have what we would call a very strict hermeneutic. That is, we hold that the Bible is there by God's design, that the details are significant. So we wouldn't say that the Bible contains the Word of God, but we would say that the Bible is the Word of God. When you say it contains the Word of God, then you're trying to decide what's God's Word and what's not. We believe that it's there by design. And this is going to be a book that has some incredible design uh, in it. Now, also, um, there's a verse that I want to point to. It's in Hosea chapter 12, verse 10. I put it there in your outline. And God says, and when he's talking about how he's given his message, he says, I have also spoken by the prophets. I have multiplied visions. And you see that in places like Ezekiel. He says, and I have used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Now that word similitudes is not a a word that we're typically familiar with. The word similitude means um, in, in essence that God tells a story and you read the story and you go, you know, you're telling a story about this But it seems to be, while you're telling a story about this, you're painting a picture of something greater. And this is going to be one of those similitudes where God is painting a much larger picture. There's a key concept in this book that we want to be familiar with, and it's called the, the, the Kinsman Redeemer. Now, the Kinsman Redeemer, there on your, it's also going to be a, a title for Jesus, so uh, a, a title that uh, we're going to want to know about. But back in the Old Testament, 
there were some verses that went like this, and I put this on your outline. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regards to him as to sell himself to a stranger, then he shall have redemption right. After he has been sold, one of his brothers may redeem him. So in the, in the ancient Israel uh, law, the, the way that it worked was that if you had, um, you had found yourself in debt so that your property was taken and uh, you were further in debt that you now had to work as an indentured servant for somebody to pay off your debt, uh, they had what they called a kinsman redeemer. If you had a relative who was close enough to you, not a distant relative, but a close enough relative to you, and that relative wanted to and had the means to, that relative could, by law, step in and buy you out of whatever bad situation you found yourself into. And it's called the kinsman redeemer. And Jesus is, of course, our kinsman redeemer. And we'll talk about that. And this, this will be a story about, about all of that. And we'll see that as we travel through. So this is going to be a picture of what it means to be redeemed or purchased out of a bad situation. So we're going to jump in in verse 1 of chapter 1. I'm going to try to get through two chapters, which means we're going to have to move rather rapidly. I'll make some comment. We'll keep going. But chapter 1, verse 1, here's what it says there in your outline. Now, it came about in the days when the judges, underline judges, because we just studied that book, governed. And there was a famine, underline that, in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. So if uh, we could throw the map up on the screen real quick. One of the things that we find is that Bethlehem, see if I can do this, Bethlehem is over here in Israel, and it's in this area known as Judah. Moab is about 70, 75 miles away. So um, as it, that's kind of the picture. So leave that up for just a couple of moments. So our story begins, first of all, we find that they live in this area called Judah, the tribe of Judah. Um, Judah, I put that there on your outline, just means praise. Literally, when the story begins, the people are living in what you and I would call the house or the place of praise. And very specifically in a town called Bethlehem, which is in the little blue box there, Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem in the Hebrew is just Bethlehem, which just means house of bread. So they're literally living in the house of praise and the house of bread. But all of a sudden, a famine comes on the land, and uh, God had said that when his people had walked away from following him, he would pull back his protection, and uh, famine would come in, and that's what's taking place. And we know this to be a a famine that's related to some type of sin in Israel, because uh, Moab is only about 75 miles away, and what we're going to find is they're not experiencing the famine. That, that's taking place. And also, it's not just a famine that would be in Judah, because if the famine was only in Judah, but not up in Dan or Ephraim, then these people would just simply go to another part of Israel. But apparently, this famine is all over the land of Israel, which would mean that it's because of some sin that's going on. And so they leave the house of praise, the house of bread, and they head over to Moab. We're also going to find that this famine is going to last over 10 years, so that we will know that it's not just a bad season. It's not just a bad season. 
So there's a famine in the house of praise. There's a famine in the house of bread. And so this family goes to this place called Moab, this uh, place called Moab. Now, Moab in our story is going to represent the world. The the Moabites, you'll recall, if you you were with us in our study of Judges, they they were the ancient enemy of Israel. They began through the incestuous relationship between a man named Lot and his daughters. And, uh, you know, they had a child named, they had a child named Moab. And uh, Moab's, uh, the Moabites worshiped a very different God. The God that they worshiped was the God Chemos. And uh, when you worship that God, you would typically sacrifice your first child to that God, and they would also practice human sacrifices. So it was very, very different than the God of the Bible. And they were so wicked that God said of them, and I put this on your outline, he says, now a Moabite shall not enter the congregation of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. You know, you you can get right, but you guys aren't coming into the house of the Lord for 10 generations. Uh, Pretty wicked group. 10th generation, their descendants shall not enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And then later on in, in uh, the book of Psalms, God is speaking and he says, Moab is my wash bowl. So uh, it's interesting because we say wash bowl because they didn't have a term for the word toilet, but that's the idea. So what you, from those two verses, you get the feeling that God has a very dim view of these people called the Moabites. Pretty, pretty straightforward so far. So um, that's how the story begins. It actually goes faster, by the way, in case you're wondering. So verse two, it says, now the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi, underline that. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephratites of Bethlehem. You might want to underline Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. So I didn't have a lot of room on your outline and don't want to take too much time for this, but the, the father of the family, his name is Elimelech, and that just, his name just means God is my king. He has two sons, Malon and Chilion. Malon literally means sickly, and uh, Chilion means uh, wasting, you know, kind of like you're wasting your life or just wasting away. Now, um, names are going to be very, very significant in this, but what's also interesting about this is that those were just common names back then. Don't ask me why. It's, hey, sickly. So anyways, that's, that's what they did. However, there is one name that we're going to really want to pay attention to, and it's the name of Naomi. Now, Naomi is, uh, her name just means the lovable, my delight. Uh, you can also translate it as beautiful. And as our story unfolds, Naomi is going to represent Israel. Go ahead and write that down. She's just going to represent Israel. Well, as they go, trouble begins to start as it always does when God's people leave the house of praise and the house of bread and head to the world to find satisfaction, to find that place of fulfillment. We pick it up in verses three and four. It says, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband died and he was, she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives and the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. Now go ahead and underline Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years, so 10 years. So you want to write that down. Now, if you've been around the Bible for any length of time, you'll know that good Jewish boys marrying Moabite women is a very unkosher thing to do. So that should at least catch your attention at this point. So when, when they do this, you know, and not only uh, would you not want to, if you're a Jewish, marry a Gentile, but you especially don't want to marry a Moabite who God says, you won't even let them into the sanctuary for 10 generations. But we're going to find that in this story that God is doing something very, very special. 
Now, Orpah's name means fawn or gazelle, and uh, not, not, not so significant, but Ruth's name is going to mean friend and or desirable one, desirable one. Now, she's going to be, she's a Gentile woman. She comes from the despised Moabites. And one of the things that we're going to find as our story unfolds is that Ruth is going to represent the church. Now, go ahead and write that down. And uh, so uh, you'll, we'll see how that all pans out as we go. Then verse 5, it says, Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman's bereft of her two children and her husband. So Naomi, who is a picture of Israel, finds herself now stranded in a foreign land, and she has lost everything at this point. We're also going to see later on that Elimelech, before they left Israel, had lost all of his property, all of his property. And so part of our story today is going to be about purchasing back Naomi's property back in the land of Israel. Verse 6, it says, She arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land, uh, she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in Israel, giving them food or, or bread. So she hears that things are now better back home. Verse 7, so she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way, uh, way to return to the land of Judah. Verse 8, it says, and Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go and return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal with you kindly as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And in essence, what she's saying is you don't want to come back with me to Israel. It's very, very Jewish there. And the truth is your Moabite girls, they're just not going to accept you. And so you need to go back to your mother's house and, uh, and, and live there. Verse 9, may the Lord grant you and may you find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So go meet a man, get married. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Well, verse 10, it says, and they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. So at this point, they're ready to leave everything that they know and go with her. Uh, Verse 11, it says, but Naomi said, no, return my daughters Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I have hope, even if I should have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? And would you refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord, and underline this, has gone forth against me. Well, they, she's, she's articulating something, a custom that they had. Um, let's go ahead and put the verse up on the screen. Uh, they had a custom, and, and it goes like this. Uh, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So the, the idea is that it's kind of it's creepy, okay? It's just one of those creepy things. But you can imagine if you realize that you might wind up with your brother's wife one day, if uh, he died, you'd have a whole lot more say as to who she married. Would you, you know, that woman is ugly. You are not marrying that woman. I'm going to get stuck with her. But, but, but here, here's the idea. What Naomi's saying, based upon this custom, she says, look, 
I'm, I'm too old to have kids. And even if tonight, you know, I had a husband and I, and, you know, I had a baby and that baby would have to grow up. Are you going to wait till they grow up before they become your husband? So no, don't, you know, don't do that. We'll actually refer to this uh, verse later on uh, once again. So um, she concludes that God is against her. And I had you underline that there in your outline, uh, in your Bible, verse 13. She says, the Lord has gone, uh, is, is against me. Now, Naomi's doing what we all do. Naomi's facing some very difficult times. And granted, you can't take away from the fact that, that what she's facing is a very difficult time. She's, she did leave the house of praise, the house of bread, the place of fellowship. God never called them to leave Israel. And uh, she's gone, and now she finds that she's lost everything. She's concluding in that, that God is now against her. And the truth is, we know the story, that God's not, not against her. He's just now rerouting the story and he's using some very painful circumstances to bring her back to the place of her homeland and back to the place of blessing. And it could very well be that right now today, in the situation that you're facing and it feels like God is against you, um, it's probably more that, that God's just rewriting your story to bring you back to the place of effectiveness, fruitfulness, and that place of fellowship. So, so you trust, and uh, we'll see how the story goes. Well, verse 14, it says, They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, clung to her. Uh, when it says clung, it, it means to like, like glue. Now, Ruth understands that when Naomi goes back to Israel, back to Bethlehem, Judah, that she has nothing. She's destitute. And so Ruth has decided to go with her and step into the role of a caretaker for her mother-in-law, for her mother-in-law. Now, Orpah, on the other hand, is told, just, just go home. And so she, she doesn't say, no, I'm going with you no matter what. She says, you know, you're right. I'm going to go home and, you know, meet a guy and get married and I'm, I'm going to go. Orpah deciding to leave and, and go home doesn't make her bad. All it does is mean that she's no longer part of the story. There are people in our lives who we thought that they would be around longer and, and uh, for whatever reason, they, they're in our lives for a season, then they're out of our lives. And, and it doesn't necessarily make them bad, but it does mean that they're no longer part of the story. And for Naomi, the best thing that she can do is just simply let her go. And she does. And uh, so Orp is no longer part of the story. Well, verse 15, it says, then she said, uh, Naomi speaking, she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from, from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the, and I want you to underline, Lord, do to me, and worse, if I do anything, uh, if anything but death parts you and me. Anything but, but death parts you and, and me. So Ruth makes, by the way, have you ever heard those, those, those phrases, you know, where your God will be my God, your people will be my God, and you ever wonder where that is? It's right there. And it's a commitment that a, a daughter-in-law is making to her mother-in-law, which is interesting because it's a commitment unto death. Typically, you'll hear those phrases, and it's at a wedding um, where one spouse will commit to the other spouse, and they'll say, you know, your God will be my God, and, you know, your, your people, my people. And then there's sort of the, and I will tolerate your mother-in-law kind of, you know, thing they text. 
But here, I don't know what you do with it. I'm just throwing it out there just to, you know, just to think it through. Um, so anyway, this is the commitment that she's making to her mother-in-law. So, so it, you know, they're interesting. So here, and I had you underline in verse 17, she says, may the Lord do to me and worse if, I, if anything but death separates us. The word there for Lord is interesting because she invokes the name of Israel's God, Jehovah. She doesn't reference the God that she grew up with, which would be Chemosh. She, she realizes that there's something about Naomi's God. What's also interesting is although Naomi is saying, God is against me, Ruth is looking on in Naomi's life, and, and she's concluding that if this is the worst that your God has for you, apparently the worst that Jehovah has for Naomi was better than anything that the God of her people had for her, and she realized that I still want this. So she says, I, I'm going with you, and I, and I do believe in your God. Well, verse 18, it says, and when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said to her, no more. Um, she, said, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So they've traveled back about 75 miles. Um, you know, when you, you had to walk that, and it's over mountains. And so it, was, it wasn't a small, small walk. Verse 20, and she said to them, do not call me Naomi, you know, which means pleasant, Call me Mara, which means bitterness, for the underlined Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And then verse 21, and I want you to underline this. She says, I went out full. I went out full. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me, afflicted me? I, I think it's... it's um, it's interesting to me that she says, I went out full. The truth is when you read the story, they left the house of bread and the house of praise because there was a famine. And so they and their family concluded, we're empty here. So they went out. And when she goes out, then she realizes 10 years later, she looks back, she says, you know what? We went out because we thought we were empty. But the truth is, we were full. See, when, when I was in the house of praise and I was in the house of bread, I, I had my husband. I, I had my kids. And, and the, the idea is that sometimes um, we think we're empty because we focus in on what we don't have and we don't see the real blessings that are around us. And in their situation, they left the house of praise, the house of bread, and they headed to the world to find satisfaction. And what she really found is how empty she could really become when she did that. That makes sense? So, um, verse 21, then verse 22, verse 22, it says, So Naomi returned with her, with her, um, Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Barley harvest. Now, you want to underline that. The barley harvest would take place in March at the same time that the Passover would take place. And that'll be important for our study as we go forward. But um, it's at the time of, of the Passover. 
Now, once again, I want you to remember that, that Naomi's coming back to a very, very Jewish community. She's bringing not just a Gentile with her, she's bringing a Moabitess, uh, somebody that, that uh, had been, was forbidden to go into the worship, place of worship for 10 generations. They were considered um, in, incredibly wicked. And, and this is the lady that's coming back with, with Naomi. Well, chapter 2. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit gives us a detail. The Holy Spirit says, I've got to give you a detail before we go any further as our story continues to unfold. By the way, has it been interesting so far? Okay. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now Naomi um, had a kinsman, a kinsman, close relative, of her husband, a man of, underline, great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz, whose name was Boaz. So here, the Holy Spirit, before we get into chapter two, he says, I need to give you this detail because if you don't get this detail, you're not gonna get chapter two. So there's this relative. Ruth has no idea who this person is. Um, Naomi hasn't seen this person in 10 years, but the Holy Spirit wants us to know that there's this relative out there. Now, I've put verse one on your outline from the old King James because it brings out something. It says, and Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a, and I want you to underline the word mighty, man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz, underline that. Now that's interesting because Boaz just means, and I put this on your outline, it just means in strength. It's just incredible strength. That's just his name, incredible strength. And um, it describes him as, and I had you underline a mighty man, mighty in that word. Some of your translations don't have this word, uh, but it's in the original language, and it's sad when they leave this word out. But, but this word, gibor, means powerful by implication, a warrior. So it, it has to do with his reputation. So he's going to be known as somebody who's wealthy beyond measure. Um, he has a reputation for valor, and uh, he's understood to be a great warrior. So this is the kind of person that we're dealing with, and he just so happens to be a close relative of Naomi, who is a, a picture of Israel. Now, later on, this name is so important that you, you'll recall that um, in the future from this time, they're going to build the temple. When they build the temple, there's going to be two pillars that hold the temple up, and those pillars are going to have names. And one of the names of one of the pillars that holds the temple up, uh, very interesting there, there in your outline, Solomon would say this. He set up the left pillar and named it, what does he name it? Boaz. So this is a very significant person, and his name, his name means in strength. Now, one of the things that we're going to find is that Boaz is going to be a picture of Jesus. Infinitely wealthy, a man of valor, great courage, uh, a warrior on behalf of, of those who are his. Then verse two, it says, and Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi. By the way, remember, she's back in Israel. She's still regarded as a Moabitess, not just a Gentile, but these despised Moabites, said to Naomi, please let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I might find favor. Do, that word favor, do any of your Bibles say grace? 
Okay, you're, you want to underline that because the, the proper translation of that word favor is grace. And she says, I need to go out and find someone who will give me grace. We'll see how that pans out as we go. And so Naomi, it says, and Naomi said to her, go, my daughter, go, my daughter. Now, um, she says, let me go out into the field and glean after the reapers. The way that they handled welfare in those days would be simply if, if you were impoverished and you know, in, in great need when, at the time of the harvest, the reapers, by the law of God, could pass through the field and they could take all of the grain, but they wouldn't get everything. And so anything that was behind them, anything that they, they left, you were able to take and you weren't allowed to make a second pass through. That was for the people who were impoverished. As a matter of fact, I put that on your outline from Leviticus. It just says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Like, don't mess with me in this. So you, you could pass through your field. All of your workers could pass through the field one time, but you couldn't pass through two times. And so as your reapers would go through, those who would be impoverished, they would come before you, and they would be picking up the wheat or whatever it is that was left that, that wasn't caught on the first time. Now, you, you wouldn't be able to gather pounds and pounds of this stuff but if you, you worked all day, you could feed your family with what you picked up because there'd be enough left, left over. And again, they couldn't go through it a second time. That was illegal. So Ruth says, let me go. And so Naomi says, go, verse three. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened. How many of your Bibles say something like, and she happened? You want to underline that. However your Bible says it, and she happened by coincidence, just happened. And uh, we'll talk about that. She happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, you know, this mighty man of valor who's rich beyond measure, who, by the way, happens to be a close relative, um, belonging to the field of Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech, of the family of Elimelech. Now, one of the things that you find as you travel through Scripture is that nothing happens by coincidence. Do you agree with that? I mean, it's all there by design. So when the Holy Spirit says she just happened, you know, it's the Holy Spirit kind of winking at us and so we go, oh, we see God's doing something. From her perspective, she just happens to go to this field. From God's perspective, he's doing something beyond what she can see. You want to go ahead and write this down. Coincidence is when God is working undercover. That's all it is. She thinks it's a coincidence. It's just God working undercover. You don't just happen to find yourself in this man's field. Um, God is doing, some of, some of us are here today and we think we just happened to come here today. Uh, somebody just happened to invite us. You're not here by accident. It's not by accident. And uh, you'll see as, as uh, you stick around and, and as uh, you, you just see. Now, verse four. Now, behold. I like how my Bible says it. It says, now, behold. Here's where the story begins. Some of your Bibles say it a little bit differently. But I, I like how my Bible says it. Now, behold, underline, Boaz came from where? Go ahead and underline that. Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless you. So 
I notice that the hero of our story today comes from Bethlehem. Go ahead and write that down. Is there another hero that's going to come from Bethlehem? As a matter of fact, it was Micah who told us this there in your outline. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. There's going to become another hero from this town of Bethlehem who is going to have existed for all eternity. So our hero today comes from Bethlehem. Verse 5, and Boaz said to his, uh, yeah, Boaz said to his servant who was in charge, underline that, his servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? She, she catches his eye. And then it says, and the servant in charge, however your Bible says it, I want you to underline that because we have this unnamed servant um, who is in charge who will also be the one who will introduce Ruth to Boaz. And uh, I didn't have a place to put it on your outline, but this unnamed servant who introduces ultimately the bride to Boaz, uh, he's going to be a picture of the Holy Spirit. You might want to just make a note somewhere, and we'll see that as we travel. So verse 6, the servant in charge of the reapers replied, well, she's the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab, from the land of Moab. So this unnamed servant is typically regarded as a, um, as a picture of the Holy Spirit. You know, in John 16, Jesus says, when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will not speak of himself, but he will only speak of Jesus. And every time the Holy Spirit is uh, in a picture in the Old Testament, he, he never has a name. It's just because he's always pointing to, he's always pointing to Jesus. And, and uh, this is a story for another day, so we won't spend any time with that. But uh, it is interesting to me that in uh, this book so far, everybody's had a name, even the people that wouldn't be part of the story. We know about Orpah. She's no longer part of the story. We know about the two dead sons, and they're not part of the story. But all of a sudden, we come to this one, and um, he's going to be the only guy who doesn't have a name in here. So uh, uh, Bible scholars see him as a picture of the Holy Spirit. And twice we're told that he is the servant who is in charge. He's, and, and he's going to be the one who will introduce Ruth to, to Boaz. Verse 7. And she said, please let me glean after the reapers and among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. And she has been sitting in the house for a little while. When it says sitting in the house for a little while, when you, you picture this, you have fields and fields and fields, and they've cleared all the trees. So there you are, you're out there working, and uh, you're out in the hot sun. So they would create these pavilions. Like when we go have a picnic, a church picnic, you know, we, we rent the pavilion. It's a place you can go under and get some shade. That's what's taking place. Verse, verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, Boaz goes, apparently uh, he's now introduced to Ruth, and he says, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go from this one, but stay here with my maids, kind of with with my employees, my people. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, underline, I have commanded the servants not to touch you, not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jar and drink from it uh, what the servants draw. Now, 
This is a privilege that normally would not be extended. Ruth is a Gentile, but she's not just a Gentile. She's a Moabite. And so here's this one who goes to her, and he says, listen, the first thing you need to know, um, I've told everybody who's with me, they don't touch you, because the rest of the people would not see her the way that Boaz sees her. They would see her as this wicked Moabite. So Boaz says to all of his servants, guys, you just need to know, you do not touch this woman. And then you also notice that, that uh, you know, they, they would look at her as good religious people and say, she's not the type of person that you'd want to be around. But apparently Boaz sees something very, very special about her, just as Jesus would see something very special about me. So he says, no one is to touch you. And he puts the word out. You mess with this girl, you mess with me. Then he says, you know, as far as drawing water, don't, you, don't worry about it. We're going to do that for you. Verse 10, it says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor, underline the word favor, in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Now, I, I've put this verse on your outline um, from the old King James because it brings out something. And it says, she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground, underline the word bowed, and said to him, why have I found, and what's that word? Grace. Grace. Why did I find grace in your eyes that you should take knowledge of me seeing that I'm a stranger? It's interesting, uh, she responds to the grace that she's receiving by bowing down to him. Now that word bowing down is a very interesting word. The word there on your outline, to bow down, it's a primitive root to depress, prostrate, uh, especially reflexive in homage to royalty or to God. Uh, This word, anytime it relates to God, is always translated as the word worship. Uh, Abraham said there on your outline, I will go yonder and worship, and it's that same Hebrew word. It's just interesting. Now, he's a picture of Jesus. He's not Jesus, but she responds to the grace by bowing down. And uh, so some, some people see something in that. Verses 11 and 12 says, Boaz replied to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And, now you, and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Now, it's interesting that when Ruth meets Boaz, she doesn't know a lot about him, but he apparently knows a lot about her, and he tells her the story of all that she's been through. Again, just the the picture continues. Verse 13, and she said, I have found favor, some of your Bibles will say grace, in your sight, Lord, for you have comforted me. Indeed, you have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like your other maidservants. Um, she just says, you know, I found grace in thine eyes. I put it there in your outline. So she says, I found grace in your eyes. So what's the basis of the kindness that Boaz is giving to Ruth? The basis is just simply grace. Write that down. Just grace. He's giving her kindness because it's just based on grace. Verse 14, with your pen in hand, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here that you may eat of the bread 
and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. Now, how many of your Bibles say something like dip your bread in the sour wine? Okay, good. So they sat beside the reapers and underline he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and they had some left. Um, interesting thing here, um, um, there in your outline it says, in verse 14, it says, at mealtime Boaz said to her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. Uh, a little, little bit on uh, Israel's history. This is taking place in, in March. And so the, the grapes don't ripen until the end of summer. So this wine, wine vinegar, would be last year's wine that um, has, is still left over, and it was called wine vinegar. It's wine, the, the actual word, the name of it, means to be fully fermented. And so the idea is that you would have this bread and this wine, you would dip it, and it would be, you know, just add flavor. So if you've ever been to an Italian restaurant, they put the oil and the, the seasoning, that's kind of the idea. So it's a bread and a, a flavored sour wine that you would dip it into. So it's interesting that when Ruth meets Boaz, the first thing that he offers her, and you want to write this down, he invites her to take bread and wine. Does anybody see that as a picture of something else? And so as the the picture develops. I also notice in this, it says he served her. So I want you to write down that Boaz serves Ruth. Uh, literally, it means that, that she served, he served her from his hand. It's not that he ordered her to be served, but he serves her from his hand. And um, which, which would be very odd that this wealthy landowner with all of this power would be serving from his hand this Moabite Gentile woman. Uh, it is, though, a picture of what we see will take place with the church, isn't it? No, notice there in your outline, in Luke, Jesus said it like this. He says, it would be good For those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes, I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, underline, and will come and wait on them. Jesus will be serving the church. So it's just part of the picture. Well, verse 15 and 16. Then she rose to glean. Boaz commanded the servant saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Underline that. Do not insult her. And, and you shall uh, purposely pull out for her some of the grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. Okay, this is the point that I wanted to make all, all, all day. If I don't make any other point, I want to make this point. You with me? Yes. You sure? Yes. All right, I know it's been a lot, but have you found it at least a little bit interesting? Yes. Okay. Ruth is going to become the Gentile bride of Boaz. Boaz is a picture of Christ, and so she is a picture of the church. She goes back out to glean, and uh, Boaz tells all of his servants, whatever you do, don't you rebuke her, and don't you insult her. As a matter of fact, you better be pulling out some sheaves to make sure that she gets some. If she's gleaning, and she gets up next to you, and you know, this is your income as you're gleaning. She's getting up next to you, and she's taking what you would want to be getting for your income. Don't you dare insult her, and don't you rebuke her. Now, you say, why is that so important? If she is a picture of the church, the command that Boaz gives is whatever you do, 
don't insult her. You want to know why they're not to insult her? Because she's going to be his girl. You and I live in a day where people feel the freedom to insult his girl, the church. And, and we'll say things like, well, you know, the church is this and the church is that and the church is lazy and the church should be doing. And we speak about the church as though the church is our girl. And the church is not our girl. It's his girl. And he says, whatever you do, don't insult her. Does that make sense? See, uh, Cheryl and I have been married for 16 years and she's my girl. She's my girl, and I love her. And, um, you know, I, I still look at her, and I look across the room, and I think, you know, she's just beautiful. She's pretty. And I walk into the bedroom sometime, and I'll see her sitting on a chair. She's got one of our kids on her lap, and she's talking, she's singing, and she's just enjoying them. And I just, I enjoy her. My, my personal viewpoint is whatever Cheryl wants, she gets. And if we don't currently have the money, I don't care. I'll figure it out. They will not put on my tombstone, he made budget. It doesn't matter. So whatever she wants, she gets. She gets. So can you imagine if somebody comes up to me and she's my girl and they say, you know what, Pastor Dan, I'm not really crazy about your wife. You know, she's kind of homely, she's lazy, you know, a little frumpy. You know, she's just, she's really not what we think a pastor's wife should be. And they're thinking, Huh? We're bonding over this, aren't we? No, we're not. No, we're not. Now, this has never happened. Uh, at least they haven't found the bodies of those that it did happen with. <laughs> but the thing is, you can't do that because it's not your girl. She's my girl. Be very, very careful when you speak bad about his girl as though you're speaking about your girl. He says, whatever you do, Don't rebuke her. Don't insult her. If she needs to be corrected, if she needs to be straightened up, whatever, let him deal with his girl. But don't you be the one to step in thinking that you're scoring points. Okay, let's move on. That make sense? All right, now we're going to read to the end. Here we go. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field from morning, uh, from field till evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned. And there was about an ephah of barley. That's about 30 pounds. Uh, if you were poor and you're going through the field, you're not going to get 30 pounds of barley in a day. Uh, so something's up. So she took it and she went into the city and, and to her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And she also took it out and gave Naomi uh, what she had left over after she was satisfied. And her mother-in-law then said to her, where did you glean today? And where did you work? She says, something's up. You just don't come home with 30 pounds of barley, gleaning as a, you know, an impoverished person. May the one who took notice of you be blessed. And so she told the mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord be blessed May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. And again, Naomi said to her, the man is a relative. He is one of our closest relatives. That is, he can step in and fix our situation. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, furthermore, he said to me, you should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. 
And Naomi said to her, Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. They didn't teach, uh, always treat foreigners or Moabites uh, very well. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley season, uh, barley harvest, and the, and I want you to underline, wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, the wheat harvest we'll talk about next time, but this is going to be a love story that will develop over a period of months. The wheat harvest takes place um, two months later at the time of Pentecost. So you want to write that down. All right, we are way over, and I am so sorry for that. But um, did you find some of that interesting? Yes. Okay. With that, we are going to close, and we will pick up next week. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Jesus, thank you for this picture, and uh, there's so much more there that we couldn't even highlight just because we'd be here um, all day. But I, I pray, God, that you've given us enough that we can, we can uh, take it and run with it and think it through and see And then, Lord, next week as we see how this love story continues and what it turns into, and I pray, God, that for each of us who are part of the bride of Christ, that that we would walk in the knowledge that um, as Boaz wanted to make sure that Ruth was incredibly blessed, that we would walk forward knowing that that's your heart for us. I pray for each and every person here today. Keep us till we meet again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.